welcome to the latest employment law podcast from Stevenson Harwood Employment Team. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and Soundcloud or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. My name is Richard Friedman and I'm an associate in the team. I have with me Paul Reeves, an employment partner, and today we're going to discuss the latest developments in relation to gender pay gap reporting, including discussing the following issues. The key obligations on employers, how employers can address some particularly tricky areas, what we can learn from the reports published to date, the difference between a gender pay gap and an equal pay claim, and finally, we will look at the recently published paper from the Equality and Human Rights Commission about enforcing the gender pay gap reporting regulations and what it means for employers. So, Paul, could you start by reminding us of the key obligations arising from the gender pay gap reporting regulations? Thanks, Richard. All employers with 250 or more employees will be required to publish gender pay gap statistics annually, with the first reports due very shortly for the year 2016-17. These must be done no later than the 4th of April 2018. Employers will need to publish at least six sets of data, and these break down as follows. Number one, the percentage difference in mean hourly pay between male and female employees. Number two, the percentage difference in median hourly pay between male and female employees. Number three, the percentage difference in mean bonus pay for male and female employees. Number four, the percentage difference in median bonus pay for male and female employees. Number five, the proportion of male and female employees who receive a bonus during the 12 months, and this needs to be expressed as a percentage. And then finally, the percentage of male and female employees split into four equal bands or quartiles. Each quartile must represent a quarter of the total number of employees. Just to ensure that the seriousness of this report, it must be signed off by a director or someone who have equivalent senior management status and it must be published on an employer's website and also uploaded to the government's database. There's no obligation on employers to publish any narrative or explanation for the statistics, but the government guidance, which accompanies the regulations, encourages them to do so, and it's something that we would echo and advise any of our clients to do as well. Thanks, Paul. The deadline for compliance is certainly fast approaching. One of the areas which we are often asked about is how employers should deal with employees who are based overseas. The draft regulations include a provision that only those employees based in the UK should be included in the statistics, but this was removed in the final version. This means that it is not clear whether employees based abroad should be included, either in the statistics themselves or for the purposes of ascertaining whether an employer reaches the 250 employee threshold at all. The guidance to the regulations indicates that overseas employees should be included for both if they have a sufficiently strong connection with Great Britain. This is the same test as is applied in relation to other employment rights, such as unfair dismissal. What approach would you suggest employers take to overseas employees? I think this is an area where employers need to exercise some caution. Applying the the test of sufficiently strong connection to overseas employees could be extremely onerous for employers if you've got a large workforce overseas. In addition, there's a risk that including some employees in your gender pay gap report you're actually creating that strong connection which may be relied upon employees in future disputes to your detriment. So we need to think very carefully before we just include all overseas employees with or without the sufficiently strong connection. The correct approach will obviously vary depending on the employer, but our advice would be that to exclude overseas employees unless there's a very good reason for including them. But always explain your approach and the narrative that accompanies your report so that you cannot be criticised for failing to be transparent. Thanks, Paul. Since there is no formal enforcement mechanism in the regulations themselves, 
something we will come back to shortly, employers are unlikely to want to get too bogged down in the detail of exactly who or what should be included in the report. Another example is whether or not to include self-employed contractors in the report. The term employee is not defined in the regulations, but the guidance indicates that it includes anyone who is engaged under a contract of service, a contract of apprenticeship, or a contract personally to do work. This clearly includes all employees, as well as workers, as well as some self-employed contractors where there is a requirement for personal service. However, there is a carve-out from the obligation to report where the employer does not have, and is not reasonably practical for them to obtain, the relevant data. This may well apply in relation to individuals engaged via a third-party company, and the employer may not have visibility on hourly rates or bonuses. Provided an explanation is included in the narrative as to who has and has not been included in the report, employers are unlikely to be challenged in relation to their approach. So far, around 600 employers have published their gender pay gap reports on the government website. As more and more reports are published, the issues are getting more and more press coverage. One of the points which gives rise to a great deal of confusion is the difference between a gender pay gap and an equal pay issue. It's important to clarify that the existence of a gender pay gap does not, in and of itself, mean that an organisation has an equal pay issue. The equal pay legislation makes it unlawful for an employer to pay women and men differently for the same or equivalent work unless there is a good reason for doing so, which is unrelated to gender. If a woman is paid less than a man for doing the same job, she may have an equal pay claim and would, if that claim were successful, be able to claim up to six years of arrears of pay. A gender pay gap report looks at the workforce as a whole on a given day rather than at individual roles. A good example of this is the gender pay gap report published by EasyJet in January which showed a mean gender pay gap of over 50%. This does not mean that EasyJet are paying, for example, female pilots 50% less than male pilots. The gap is largely explained by the fact that the majority of pilots, in fact 94%, are men and the majority of cabin crew are women. That gender disparity and the higher salary paid to pilots when compared to cabin crew increases the gender pay gap at the organisation. This means that while gender pay gap reports may highlight gender equality issues within organisations, and will certainly bring the issue to the attention of staff, the contents of a gender pay gap report alone will not be sufficient evidence on which to found an equal pay claim. Paul, are there any themes we can gauge from what has already been published, or any lessons which can be learned for those who have not yet published their reports? Well, 600 is a fairly small proportion of the overall number of employers who are subject to the duty to report. The government estimates that there should be around 9,000 employers reporting gender pay. So we have some way to go before we get to see the full picture. Not surprising, though, that we're going to get a deluge as we get closer to April. It's the first time that employers have had to do this, and it's going to be quite an onerous task in the first year to get that data and put it into some form of report. I'd expect in the second year that more employers will be prepared to report earlier, and they will find it much easier to report now that they've got the data to hand. From what has been reported... There are some trends that we can identify even at this early stage. For example, the vast majority of the employers who have reported so far have identified a gender pay gap. A fifth of those who have reported have a gap of over 20%. An extremely small minority have a reverse pay gap. This means that women are being paid more than men. But many more show that men in an organisation are paid on average more than women, which is not a surprise. Many of the disparities, both in relation to hourly pay and bonus pay, are explained by the structure in the example you use, Richard, with regard to EasyJet, with higher salaries and bonuses being paid to employees in more senior roles, which are held disproportionately by men. Part-time working also has an impact in relation to bonus pay, and this is often referred to in the accompanying narrative to the reports. 
that we've seen so far. As you might have expected, the quartile figures indicate that men are far more highly represented in the highest earning quartiles, while women are more highly represented in the lowest. Most, but by no means all, of the employers who have reported so far have included a narrative alongside the bare statistics, a point we touched on earlier. Many have sought to explain their pay gap by, for example, highlighting issues such as gender imbalance in the particular industry, or by explaining that there are currently more men than women in senior roles. Often, these explanations are supported by information about steps the employer is taking to address the issues, such as reviewing remuneration policies and procedures, implementing return to work and flexible working programmes, and supporting external initiatives to improve women's participation in the workplace. And this is the key part to any of the gender pay reports. The statistics are what they are. It's more about what our employers doing or going to do to reduce that gap. For me, the interesting reports will be next year, as I've already touched upon, not this year's, when employers can show what steps they've taken to reduce the gap and how successful those efforts have been. There are some reports already published which contain information and statistics which is evidently inaccurate. For example, a number of employers have reported of having exactly equal numbers in each of the quartiles, which is, statistically, highly improbable. Some have stated they have no gap, or one report stated it had virtually no gap. We've seen some organisations correct their original report a couple of times already. In one example, the employer stated they had no gap in their original report, but changed this to a gap of over 30%, and then finally landed on a gap of just below 10%. At present, while the numbers of reports are low, this kind of inaccuracy is being spotted and jumped upon by commentators, particularly in the employment law world. It's likely that by the time there are 9,000 or so reports on the website, inaccuracies such as this may fall further under the radar and may not be picked up so quickly, especially where they relate to smaller businesses rather than household names. In terms of lessons learned, I would say that apart from making sure your numbers are accurate, so you avoid having to make corrections, the main lesson is that it is a good idea to include a narrative with your report. We've always recommended this, and it's also strongly encouraged in the guidance to the regulations. This is really borne out by the reports published to date. Those with a convincing narrative are much more palatable, irrespective of the data that's accompanying them, and give employers a great opportunity to explain particular issues and anomalies and to identify positive steps they are taking to narrow the gender pay gap, e.g. recruitment, flexible working patterns. Thanks, Paul. Yes, it's already clear that the accompanying narrative is a key part to these reports. One of the areas which has been heavily criticised is that the regulations do not contain any formal enforcement measures or penalties for failure to comply. The government has always indicated that negative publicity and a system of naming and shaming those who don't comply would act as a deterrent. In addition, the guidance accompanying the regulations states that a breach of the regulations will constitute an unlawful act under the equality legislation in respect of which the Equality and Human Rights Commission can take enforcement action. Just before Christmas... The Commission published a draft policy setting out its proposed approach to this enforcement. Paul, what did we learn from that draft policy? Well, I think it's clear that while they do intend to take enforcement action against employers who don't comply, this will commence with informal action and education, and as a last resort, formal action, which could ultimately lead to fines being imposed. An employer could also choose to comply rather than pay a fine, even where one was imposed. In addition, the Commission has indicated that its primary focus will be on employers who have not published any data and that they will only take action against those who publish inaccurate data if they have adequate resources. In any event, there are two real issues here with the Commission's proposed approach. The first is that there is a real question about whether the Commission actually has the power to carry out enforcement action. 
in spite of the non-binding indication to that effect in the guidance. Secondly, the Commission is under-resourced, and it's hard to imagine that they will have adequate resources to pursue a significant number of non-compliant employers, so they're going to have to pick their battles carefully. In practice, it's likely that the most effective enforcement measures of the regulations is going to be either media coverage and or pressure from employees. So it's vitally important that employees be on the front foot with their messaging and get their data right the first time. Thanks, Paul. And thanks for listening. Don't forget that you can listen again and subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud or by visiting the Stevenson Harwood website. (laughs) 